Satan, your kingdom must come down. Serpent handling is like coronavirus. People that are unlearned and don't have any facts about it have very strong opinions about it, you know? It's like me trying to tell you about what coronavirus is and where it came from. I wouldn't even dare do that because I don't have the training. I don't have any experience with those types of things. You know, I, I don't even think I took a science going to Bible college, buddy. Last science class I had was probably in the 10th grade or something. And then me going to try to tell you something about a damn coronavirus. <laughs> your kingdom must come down. We hear things. We feel a certain way about them. And then because we feel a certain way about them, then we go out to justify the reason that we feel a certain way about it. So whenever you say the coronavirus is a hoax, well, there's going to be some people out there that they want to feel that way because they don't like being at home. They want their life back. They want their business back open. And so even though they only have a high school education, they go out and they say, yeah. Then you just Google and you find the right information that you want for your side and your team. And then you go out and you spout it out. But really, you don't know anything. Really, you're just repeating something somebody else said that made you feel good. You know, in the same way with particularly with serpent handling. Serpent handling scares the crap out of most people, as it did me. And it's uncomfortable to them. And then it also has this added dimension that it is done in accordance with biblical passage, which adds this completely different layer because so many people identify themselves with the way that they interpret biblical passages. Just the mention of serpent handling sends chills down most people's spine and it scares them. And so they just go out and they formulate opinions to try to justify why it is that they feel that way. But they never investigate it. From a completely objective standpoint, they just come at it as, I don't like serpent handling. Let me tell you why it's false. They're tempting God. And you can tell that's exactly what it is, Farrell, because I've read all of them, buddy. Before you go talking about something, how much do you know about it? And I ain't talking about something you read. These people that talk about coronavirus all the time, and I know for a fact that they ain't got no degree in virology or whatever they call that stuff. If you ain't got no degree in it, just shut your mouth. I don't care. If you don't know nothing about serpent handling, I don't care what your opinion is because your opinion is based on what you want to be true. You go find what you want to be true and then you go off and spout it. Your opinion on serpent handling, if all you ever done was read Salvation on Sand Mountain, don't mean nothing to me. And we're all humans and we're all subject to doing that kind of stuff. But I think we can all be better than that. And I mean, this whole journey has proved to me that I could be better than that. Your kingdom comes down. the voice of Jesus. Your kingdom must come down. This is Alabama Astronaut, hosted by Farrell Gibbs. Abe continues to digitize VHS tapes for his newfound friends. As the VCR in his office plays on loop, he discovers that not all footage is of serpent handling, preaching, and music. No, sometimes the believers recorded national television shows that featured their friends. Hi, I'm Jerry Springer. It's a religious congregation that worships God by handling poisonous snakes and drinking strychnine poison. One of my guests today says her shy, gentle, southern-born sister has turned into a religious fanatic. Here is a clip that did not exist on the internet at the time of this podcast recording. I'm standing here with Dennis Covington, a freelance journalist and English professor. Dennis, as I understand it, you covered a story about these people, and then you kind of got caught up in it, and all of a sudden, you believe in what they're talking about. Abe just happened to walk into his office while this particular VHS tape was playing while recording and realized it was a staticky Jerry Springer episode featuring serpent-handling believers. They had uh, Carl Porter and Pumpkin Brown. They were there to represent the serpent-handling faith, and basically, it was just a, you know, a burn, look at these idiots kind of thing just to ridicule them. Are you then saying who doesn't take up the serpent is not a believer? Absolutely not. Okay, well, good. Help us with that. Of course. The, the scripture says that there shall be these believers who take up serpents. Here they are. They're confirming the word. 
was basically trying to go down a list of all the reasons why they were wrong, and it was a cult. And then Dennis Covington stands up, and he corrects the cult expert, and he said... Uh, well, this religion that we're talking about is Christianity. Yes. It is not snake worshiping, as you've described it. He said this religion that you're referring to is actually called Christianity. It was the best moment in the entire episode, if you ask me, because uh, it kind of put everything in perspective. You had all these people, the most of which probably identified with some sort of Christianity or familiar with some form of Christianity and uh, ridicule. My guess is that 90% of this audience is Christian. So we're not talking about Christianity. What we're talking about is that to be a Christian, you have to play with the snakes or um, not play with the snakes, involve the snakes in the worship or drink poison, that's the issue. Well, the issue is whether we believe the word. And in the word, as you will notice, Mark 16, it says that believers shall take up serpents. And, and even Springer was really, which, I mean, we're talking about Jerry Springer. We're talking about the guy who gets, you know, I'm in love with my cousin, that kind of <laughs> stuff, you know. Which, if you're getting your information from Jerry Springer, I mean, <clears throat> you probably already have got a moral deficit of some kind. That's a lie that you have to... You don't know what you talk about. What a time. Come down. Okay, you don't have a mic. You can say what you want, and I know you're angry. Okay, excuse me. Behold yet another remarkable example of the importance of videotapes to the serpent-handling faith. As Abe and Farrell continue to check Dennis Covington's work, in an interview with Tony Fair, the artist from Episode 6 and newfound friend of Abe and Farrell, not to mention a man who frequented the legendary church in Jolo, West Virginia, about the topic of Dennis Covington, Tony Fair dropped a bomb. The only book that I read was Dennis Covington's book. And, you know, that was kind of coming from a journalist and a bit of an outsider's point of view. Not only did he happen to be at one of the very same services that Dennis Covington attended in the early 90s in Jolo, Tony also recorded footage. This wasn't just any service at Jolo. It was an event that actually made it into the book, Salvation on Sand Mountain. The videotape, which had been buried for 30 years in a New York City storage unit, took a long, strange, and unlikely journey to Abe's hands in Alabama. What began with a song that Abe found on a dilapidated website led to a friendship with this artist in New York who had yet another treasure buried in his stash. He was in Jolo for one of the homecomings where I attended. I thought it was really interesting to read the chapter about that weekend. And now, Abe and Farrell have Tony's video account of Barbara Elkins, the heralded matriarch of the serpent-handling faith, who gave Dennis Covington a sharp rebuke for sitting up front in the church to compare with Dennis Covington's own personal account in Salvation on Sand Mountain. What Farrell notices is that every single event that happened on Tony's VHS tape was described precisely that way in the book. What's more, if you watch Dennis Covington in the front pew, he keeps his eyes squarely on Barbara Elkins. He never even jots down a single note. If he did not use a video camera to record all of that, which I didn't see one in the video, I mean, that's an amazing recollection, don't you think? Word-for-word word depiction of what happened, right? That kind of scalding, I don't believe you would just forget it. <laughs> Here are excerpts about this event from Dennis Covington's Salvation on Sand Mountain. Sister Barb stood on unsteady feet, and Brother Bob handed her the microphone. She started at one end of the platform and worked her way down. She was wincing in pain, but there was something she wanted to make clear. She'd had it with the outsiders in the midst of the handlers. She had a few words to say on the subject. I want to say this. These reporters need to stay back. That's about parents for the same. That's right. That's right. And it's not a show. These reporters need to stay back. It's for people that worship God. Yes, in spirit and in truth. I felt my own face flush as I realized she was talking most particularly about me. Did you notice that behind Barb Elkins was Tony Thayer's art that he had made on the wall? I did not. Dennis Covington, there he was, sitting on the very front row. And it does look like Barb Elkins is looking right at him. 
And these reporters, if they want to make their money, they can make it that car, not that go to endanger people's lives. A day before their meeting with Dennis Covington, Farrell received an email from the writer. Okay, guys, a friend of mine is going to let us do the interview at her house. As long as you've both been vaccinated, her name is She's a retired professional tennis player and a former Associated Press correspondent covering this part of Texas. She was a line judge for the Battle of the Sexes in 1973. No, we could not make this stuff up. Riggs and King met that fall in the Battle of the Sexes, and Billie Jean King won in three straight sets before a television audience estimated at more than 50 million people. Billie Jean's victory helped elevate women's tennis to its current status. She's not to be messed with. Just give us a time so I can be at her place. We're going to drive to Lubbock, Texas. We're going to sit across from this man, and you're going to ask some very hard questions about what is clearly the work of his life. But there's this really strange circumstance where this man is sick. He can't remember names of people. Right. The fact that he has dementia, I don't want to crush this guy. Even if he deserves it, I don't want to crush the guy. Yeah. But those are my thoughts, man. I wanted to know your thoughts. Well, he is just like us in the fact that he is a producer, a creative who produces media. And if anybody believes that you can be a producer or creator of media and not have it looked at critically, you're just not really aware of the way that things work. I mean, anytime somebody writes a song, it gets criticized. Some love it, some hate it, and everything in between. And people will be vocal about both sides and everything in the middle. Whenever you write a book, the same thing goes. This is a piece of media. I mean, I don't look at it as a personal assault on Dennis Covington as a man. That's not what this is. It's not personal against the man himself. In fact, I have great sympathy for him, and I have great respect for him. As a writer and as a creative, one of the most incredible books that I've ever read in my life. And uh, you should go out and buy a copy and read it. I mean, you can even mention in the podcast, I mean, the way he got injured, he didn't get injured through old age. He got injured through a concussive explosion that gave him brain damage while he's writing a book about faith in Syria. We're not talking about a man who's just getting old. We're talking about a man who's been so interested in faith that he put his life on the line for it. And now he's paying heavy consequences for it. It's not an attack on him. It's a criticism of his work. And those are two different things. You know, when I go to the studio and I'm sitting down with Sean Byrne and he's like, dude, the way you're playing the guitar right here, you got to do something else. I don't get mad. I don't get upset about it. It's not a personal attack on me. It's a criticism of my work. And if my work can be made better or made more pure, then let's do it. And, you know, as far as our podcast goes, if people criticize us about whatever they criticize us about, if it's a legitimate criticism, I'm not going to run from that, you know, be a fool to run from it. You know, if this podcast manages to go around and I'm 80 years old one day and I've got dementia and somebody comes along and finds some glaring error in this thing, let me know. I ain't scared of the truth. I'm not above being wrong, and neither is you, or neither is Dennis Covington. If you think he's a human being just like me and you, then I mean, everybody's capable of making errors. Abe left Keesler Air Force Base after duty on a Saturday afternoon, then drove what would normally be a six-hour trip to Farrell's house, just northwest of Houston. Not far down Interstate 10, Abe slammed into a traffic jam. The third largest bridge in the country was shut down, the Atchafalaya Basin Bridge, a crucial connection between Baton Rouge and Lafayette, Louisiana. The Atchafalaya Bridge shut down earlier this morning by authorities after a multi-vehicle collision. The wreck caused a backup on I-10 for hours and- A zombified Abe pulled up at Farrell's house at 5 a.m. the next morning. He flopped into Farrell's truck and the two headed off to Lubbock, 
Once in the truck, Abe crashed and slept as Farrell drove them through countless wind farms across desert that separates Houston from Lubbock. Abe had traveled 21 hours one way, and just to ask what had become a pressing question, had Mr. Covington apologized? And if so, for what offense? Farrell knew that this sort of side quest wasn't really up Abe's alley, to push a man for something that felt sort of tabloidal, sensational, something that didn't warrant the type of serious contemplation and gravity of approach that documenting music did, the thing Abe really liked to do. If it wasn't for this one thing, Abe Partridge would have never journeyed so far into Texas, as he told Farrell when they finally pulled up to the line judge's house. Abe was there to get the truth, so that he might perhaps clear the names of his friends back in Kentucky, West Virginia, Alabama, and Tennessee. Now, you have shared with me the questions that you have written down in your notebook to ask him. I was hoping you would share some of them for the audience before we go sit in his friend's house and ask him these questions. So the first one was Uncle Uli Lin is mentioned in his book in the very first part. Page three, Salvation on Sand Mountain. In his youth, the story went, Uncle Uli had been one of the biggest gospel singers on Sand Mountain. At the time of his death, Uncle Uli was still receiving royalties for songs he had written for his relative, Loretta Lynn. One of Loretta Lynn's relatives who received royalties from songs that he had written for his relative Loretta Lynn. I wanted to ask him about that because I can't find that anywhere in any publication at all. That is correct. Not only that, but we at this time have been unable at Alabama Astronaut to find any licensed songs of Loretta Lynn's with the writing credit to Uncle Uli. I called my manager to see if he could track that down. He did get with Loretta Lynn's management, but I have not received any response. Page 20. I heard Brother Carl Porter behind me. I hear you're a writer, he said, and shook my hand. I nodded and apologized for taking notes during the service. What are you writing about, he asked. I told him I'd covered Glenn Summerford's trial, that I was writing a book about snake handling. He glanced away as if he'd heard that one before. Then on page 20 of the book, he talks about, quote, the inevitable treachery, unquote. Then he told me, the Bible says Jesus won't come again until the gospel's been published in every nation. So you just go ahead and write that book. As long as you tell the truth, it'll be edifying to the body of Christ. It'll be like you're spreading the gospel, won't it? I nodded. But I wondered if Brother Carl knew about the inevitable treachery that stood between journalist and subject. Inevitable treachery that he was going to be engaged in with Carl Porter as a journalist and Carl Porter being the preacher. I wish I could assure the Porters and the McLaughlins and all the others that we can be friends as long as we like, but that I won't be taking up serpents anymore. I refuse to be witness to suicide particularly my own. And I wanted to ask him why did he feel like being a journalist was a treacherous thing to do, a treacherous act. There was this interesting part in his book where he handled a serpent and then he decided that he was not going to be handling serpents anymore. He said that if he handled a serpent and were to get bit and killed by it, it would have been suicide. Knowing where you come from is one thing, but it's suicide to stay there. It's sad in a way. I wish I could assure the Porters and the McLaughlins and all the others that we can be friends as long as we like, but that I won't be taking up serpents anymore. I refuse to be a witness to suicide, particularly my own. I have two daughters to raise and a vocation in the world. I just was trying to figure out a way for those two things to be compatible. He claimed to have taken up a serpent under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. But then at the same time, if he would have gotten bit during that experience, it would have been suicide. I don't understand that because um, a suicide is on purpose. You know what I mean? If I fall off my boat and drown, that's an accident. If I jump off my boat on purpose to kill myself and then drown, that's a suicide. Page 235. I had found my people, but I also discovered that I couldn't be one of them after all. And so if you're taking up a serpent under what you say is the anointing of the Holy Ghost, believing in Mark chapter 16, they shall take up serpents as being a command, and you're taking that thing up under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, and that thing bites and kills you, to me that would square with an accident. 
not a suicide. I don't know, brother. That's, you know, this is what you call down in the deep end, you know? Which, you know, faith is an interesting thing, man. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe he's right. I mean, maybe, I mean, you know what we've been doing in this whole thing is we're trying to explain something that is based in the heart. I mean, real faith is hard. And when you're talking about stuff like this, you're talking with your head. You know, faith first hits you in the heart. You can't make sense out of it, which is always the funny thing about apologetics. Because when you talk about apologetics, you're talking about head arguments for faith. Well, Dr. Nike has brought up some real problems. <laughs> you know, there's not going to be enough evidence for all this. I mean, so, you know, maybe in Dennis Covington's heart, this all makes sense. But uh, I can't make it jive in my head. I can't make an act of faith and belief be associated with a suicidal act. You know what I mean? That's hard for me to put together. But you know, man, I mean, I can totally understand his perspective and feeling that it was a divine thing. I mean, I've been in a number of services by this point where my heart was telling me there was evidence of divine everywhere I looked. But in my head, there was no way I'm gonna go pick up a serpent, you know? I got children. I use my fingers a lot, too. I use my fingers to pick guitars and paint pictures, and I need them. I don't need no snake getting on my fingers. On a blazing hot day in late June, Abe and Farrell arrived at the tennis pro's house. Dennis Covington waited at the door, a wide, welcoming smile on his face. But I'm curious why you're curious about the snake handling. Is it because of your... Oh, well, see, not, well, 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 so over the past, uh, for the past year... He waved the boys into the living room, taking a seat in a lazy boy across from them. As the Battle of the Sexes line judge studied the two podcasters suspiciously. Y'all are like the two most interesting people in Lubbock, Texas. Oh, God. <laughs> is, that, is that right? I don't think so. Uh, it, field recorder. Yeah, I've been taking it to serpent handling churches and uh, using it to record. Do you ask them? Oh, yeah. Now, yeah, some of them won't let me. But You got the right guy here. His, uh, you read his book. Right? Oh, of course. Yeah, okay, <laughs> of I'm course. Okay, I'm going to shut up now and listen. Yeah, to that's, why, that's why we came. I'm collecting the music. Farrell is making a podcast. They sing songs that have to do with serpents and Jesus and poison that nobody else in the world sings because nobody believes it. Well, that one song I heard was incredible. Yeah, what did you send him? It's all right with me, Lord, if it's all right with you. Abe led the interview with Mr. Covington for over two hours. With notebook in hand, he delicately questioned the author, going down the list and asking the questions you heard discussed earlier. Throughout the course of the conversation, often the topics drifted to other non-serpent handling related subjects, like Mr. Covington's trip to Syria, his injury due to the detonation of the bomb, and of course, his adventures in writing. Abe never did object to any of the conversation drifting and gracefully deferred to Mr. Covington's every wish as the author spoke about all he felt compelled to discuss. An interview resulted that was friendly, warm, and ultimately enlightening. You can get more of the interview with Abe and Mr. Covington on alabamaastronaut.com. Of course, as it concerned Abe's comprehensive list of questions, he only was able to get across three of them. And you mentioned this guy, Uncle Uly, U-L-L-Y, capital U-L-L-Y. Okay. And you said that he was, uh, at the time of his death, receiving royalties for the songs he'd written for his relative, Loretta Lynn. We're obviously doing this thing on music. I've never seen this written anywhere else. We're going to try to uncover exactly what it was, because he was a serpent handler, you know, and if we can show that a serpent handler wrote some hits for Loretta Lynn, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. If, especially yeah. if we can identify him. And I was wondering if you have any recollection over maybe what songs those might have been that he might have wrote for Loretta Lynn or helped write or received royalties yeah, for help write. I have no idea. Do you remember where you got that information from or anything? No. Second, did Dennis Covington think the Serpent Handler's songs were special? Special enough that it was worth somebody documenting it like Abe had? I heard what was going on. I got out of the car and I just, I didn't know whether I wanted to go in there. Mm -hmm. Why? I mean, it sounded like it crazy. It was just the singing that was going on, the music. It was just wow. It wasn't a mistake that I went in, in retrospect. 
but you know, it could have gone either way. Uh, but I had no. That's a good way to bottom line it. Yeah. yeah. But I knew, I knew the minute I got in there, it was something special. Then Abe asked his question about suicide. Back to the experiences you had in the sides and whatnot. Sitting here in 2021, you know, he's taking up serpent and speaking in tongues and slain in the spirit. I don't, I don't know how to say it other than, is it still real to you? You still believe that those are all genuine? It was just the type of open-ended question that reminded Farrell of something Cody Coots had once said about Abe after Cody had been questioned by Abe himself in an interview. This guy is not just about the music and the sides. I feel like he was looking for something. I don't take up service anymore. Well, I know that. Yeah, I know that. But uh, I don't make fun of people who do. That's for sure. Am I a believer that there is a God? That's a big question. My father believed that. And my father is the man I loved most in the world. To me, he was perfect. He was just a good man. He voted for George Wallace, so we got in a lot of arguments. <laughs> but he was good. I wouldn't doubt anybody's religious experiences or their faith unless it involves the murder of innocents. This is one thing that I found to be interesting in the book, but you said it's sad in a way. I wish I could assure the Porters and the McLaughlins and all the others that we can be friends as long as we like, but that I won't be taking up serpents anymore. I refuse to be the witness to suicide, particularly my own. I have two daughters to raise and a vocation in the world. Yeah. When I first read this, that was a paragraph that just like jumped off and like slapped me back into reality, you know. And when you say um, suicide, like would it have been suicide when Carl Porter handed you that snake if it would have bit you and killed you? Do you think that would have been suicide? Uh, yeah, I, I think probably. My uncle, that's in there. He committed suicide. He ran an electrical cord from the basement, electrocuted himself. He was extremely spiritual. You know, I think that religion crosses sometimes with mental illness in that way. Uh-huh. He was the finest man I knew. You know, there's a way that we can all live together, have different ideas and different goals in life. Nobody can be counted off except, I think, for people who absolutely kill other people just for the hell of it or for money. But the handlers, I, I respected them for the most part. And I think there was maybe one or two guys. You, did, you didn't treat uh, uh, Pumpkin Brown. Pumpkin didn't, Brown he didn't get the best uh, treatment in the book. Well, you know, hell, I don't know what was wrong with him, but it seemed like he just wanted to die or something. I don't, I don't know. But uh, I was sad when he did. Finally, even though it was evident that the fatigued author was now moving to adjourn the interview by leaning forward in his lazy boy and snuffing his cigarette, then fishing for a pen with which to sign their books. With maybe just a momentary flash of hesitation, Abe proceeded with the question he'd come so far to ask. There's, there's one more question I'd like yeah. to ask you if it's okay. Can I do that? Of course. The first church I ever went to in this whole thing was Old Rock House Holiness up there on Sand Mountain, uh-huh. and Billy Summerford was preaching, right? And Billy Summerford, he preached on Mark 16, preached on the five signs, and he mentioned you. From my perspective, I had just read your book like uh-huh. three months ago, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. First thing Billy Summerford mentions, he's like, Dennis Covington came here and he apologized for writing that book, Salvation on Sand Mountain. I don't think so. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Well, that's, that's what that's what that's what Billy Sumner said. Now, now remind remind me who Billy. You was you on. talk about him in here, Billy and Jimmy Summerford. They were the cousins of Glenn Summerford. You describe Billy as having buck too. You don't remember. I just can't quite. They started Old Rock House Holiness in that. You were there for it. It was uh, they bought the old church out in the middle of the cornfield. Oh yeah, that was. Yeah, That's that. that they, yeah, they're still having church there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah and uh, yeah. when I first went, I heard that, and uh, 
I was like, man, what are the odds that I read this book and then they yeah. and then I mean I've been a number of times since then they never said another word about it. But I was always like, yeah, what, well, what, I, what I did think he I, I remember liking them. I mean, I don't think there was anything. Yeah, yeah. that's where you handle the that's where you handle the serpent in this book, right? Yeah, yeah. Carl Porter handed it to you. But you but I know that you also said Charles McLaughlin told you that he wasn't gonna go back there because right. Remember that? Yeah. Was that the time when he baptized you with his tears? Yeah. And he told you he wasn't going back? Yeah. 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 I, I, I made a list of questions here, and that was the last one. I know you're getting up. I know you, you're ill, but we, we well, just... We've put you through a lot. Yeah, we've put you... No, I didn't I don't, put you all through a lot. No. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for writing this, and it's made a huge impact in my life. And... Uh, Reverend Billy Ray Summerford, age 73, of Section, Alabama, passed away on Friday, July 23, 2021. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. at W.T. Wilson Funeral Chapel, with burial to follow in Davistown Cemetery. The family will receive friends from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. As the dust settled from an eventful summer, Abe found himself back on the road. Here's Abe on his way out of Gray, Kentucky, after attending a service at Andrew Hamlin's church, the Free Pentecostal House of Prayer. He was like, we're glad Abraham's here, you know. He's like, I tell you, when he first came around, I didn't know about him, you know. He said, we get so many people coming here. He said, most people just want to write a story that drags us through the mud, and we help them do it. He turned around to Cody, and he's like, halfway brother, we've helped them do it. He said in his sermon while he's preaching that, that he trusts me, that he doesn't think that I'm just trying to burn him. And I'm not, you know, I'm not. At this point in the game, dude, there's no way that I could betray Cody's trust. I mean, the dude's my buddy, man. I mean, I, I suspect that we're going to be friends from now on, you know. I mean, I like the dude. I'm glad we're friends. I'm glad that I was in a position to help him. There's no way that I'm going to do anything with this story that he feels like hurts me, you know? He's got to be on board with it. And I, I'm sure that we'll be able to get there with because I really believe he trusts me, and I think he trusts you. I told Cody, I said, before I ever met you, Cody, I read about everything online about you. I read all the articles. And I said, before I ever met Andrew, I read the Julia Dean book. And not only that, when you first told me about Andrew Hamlin still preaching, I really wasn't all that excited about going to the church because I read the book. And he's like, yeah, well, that's the way they painted us, but uh, it's not all true. And uh, all I'm saying is, you know, there's just two sides to every story, and they're not perfect, dude. They're not perfect. There's a lot of warts and a lot of imperfections in all these people, but no more than anybody else. I remember when you were asking me about leaving Middlesbrough. That is Kathy, Abe's wife. She has made the trip for the first time. I never felt right. We were told and made to feel guilty all the time. Go door to door, knock on the door, tell people why you're there, give them a gospel track, recite in your head how you're going to speak to them, and give them the plan of salvation. I never felt comfortable doing that. Number one, I felt terrible because we would go around the time where people were getting off work and trying to have dinner with their families after working all day. Or it would happen on the weekends when they're trying to be with their family and spend time with their family. Here you are carrying your Bible and you're in your dress and all dressed up and you're knocking on their door and you're going to tell them straight up, not even knowing this person at all, their motives or their history or their backstory, and just knock on their door and tell them they're going to go to hell if they don't repeat after you this prayer. I mean, how offensive is that? That, to me, is not what God wants you to do at all. Well, what did you think of Andrew Hamlin's today at Free Pentecostal House of Prayer? Honestly, I was nervous going in there because it is kind of 
scary to know that there's serpents in a church, you know, <laughs> but they keep them locked up in a box and I didn't see any until they brought them out. Andrew Hamlin was really friendly and thanked me several times for coming and invited me to come back. And he told me, first time you came, you're a visitor, but the second time you come, you're family. So you come anytime. Being in that service, for the first time in a really, really long time, I felt like I could worship God, you know? Like I could close my eyes and sit there and, and not feel like the people around me were being fake. I felt they were genuine. There was people turned to the wall and singing to God. I've been to so many churches where they like want to be seen and they want people to hear them. And I'm not saying it's wrong to get up in front of people and sing and I'm like, I'm not saying that because they do that too, but they didn't care if people were watching them. They were like, this is my time with me and God. It wasn't a ritual. They didn't care if people saw them or not. They weren't doing it for them. They were doing it for themselves. It was just a really refreshing thing to see. I seen this saying once that said, preach the gospel always and sometimes use words. It's way, way more effective to not talk and just shut up and live your life. And then when they come to ask you what you got that they don't have, that's when you tell them. Not beat down their door and bust them over the head with your Bible. What you doing, my friend? Well, it all began when I was with a little child. <laughs> On the phone with Farrell is Pastor Andrew Hamblin, preacher at Free Pentecostal House of Prayer in Gray, Kentucky. First time you ever laid eyes on Abe. What did you think? The day Cody called me and told me about Abe, I got straight off the phone with him. I will meet folk, fill them out, whatever. Taylor was ready to meet him in the parking lot and say, go home. You've wasted your gas. You're not going to come up here and exploit us. We've been exploited enough. You're not going to come up here under the disguise of wanting to hear the music. First time I met Abe Partridge, I knew in my gut, you know, when you're folk like me and Taylor, you know, we, we have trust issues anyway. Now, naturally, we didn't just go off of our gut feeling or whatever. We filled him out. We Googled him. Taylor comes stressed. As soon as we got internet service that night, she, comes, she said, he's real. <laughs> My first impression of Abe before meeting him was he is nothing more than another crackpot journalist, reporter, somebody that's going to try to come in here. They've seen the TV show. They've read the books. They've seen all the good, the bad, and the ugly that's all over the internet about it. And here's a way for him to swoop in. And Because, you know, we've had him do us that way before. But here come this guy from out of Alabama with curly hair and a, and a Waterloo guitar. <laughs> but I didn't have no doubts about him after I first met him. It's like we live parallel lives. Different circumstances in some way, different denominations. It seemed like when we finally hit our breaking point and took off running from religion and we took off running away from everything we've ever been taught and everything we was ever told. I, I see what he does with his music as a form of evangelism. You know, you hear a lot of his funnier songs. Hey, Partridge, 403rd Freak Out. Get thee behind me, hippie. And, you know, we, we, we listened and, and we laughed. I enjoyed them. Uh, Alabama astronaut. Well, I was quiet in the back 40 trailer park last night. I mean, there were a few domestic fights and them usual petty crimes, but I was feeling all right. I was drinking whiskey with my Sprite. How, what makes the music that y'all play at that church like that? What 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 is behind it? No one, to the best of my knowledge, that you've ever heard inside that building has ever had lessons of any kind. And I looked up and I beheld it was a spacecraft from another world. Everybody is self-taught or, you know, they learned in church. And for me, I, I started playing when I was six. Uh, I've been playing almost 30 years. I've been, uh, you know, 24 years of my life, I've been playing music. And I even stole a little space traveling cart. I put it out in the barn. Me and Bubba painted it camouflage. And we're about to embark as an interstellar white trash Lewis and Clark. We're going to call ourselves the Alabama Astronauts. 
and I will say this, and and I I mean I may be partially biased. You you can hear Pentecostal, Apostolic, and Holiness, Church of God, all the forms of Pentecostalism, movements, music, but you will never find anywhere on earth. I, you know, I've been in different churches. I mean, I've been in different churches my whole life. And you can tell whenever someone starts to sing or certain licks they play on a guitar or certain runs they do on a piano or organ. You can look at them and say, you either come from southeastern Kentucky, southwest Virginia, you know, southwestern West Virginia. You come from somewhere in those mountains. Yes, I've been waiting on them aliens to come. Uh, here we go again. I couldn't help but notice, Abe, in that audio you just sent along from you two visiting Jimmy Morrow's church today. It sounds very much like Jimmy has asked you again to sing a song on stage. Uh, do you care to explain yourself? I don't know. I took my wife up there with me, and there was me and my wife used to sing at church nearly three or four times a week. You know, back whenever we were living in North Georgia and then whenever we moved up to Kentucky and I started pastoring that church. We sang in church a lot, a whole lot. I don't know, it was nostalgic almost, you know. It was uh it was awesome, man. I loved it. I was way more nervous doing that than I was. I mean, it would have been easier to play on a stage in front of five hundred people singing my own songs than it would be singing gospel songs at Jimmy Mars Homecoming. You said, I will not participate in a serpent handling service, right? Suddenly, there you are. Oh, beautiful star When I got there, you know, Jimmy's like, you got your guitar? I said, yeah. Well, I bought it in, you know, I put it on the front bench, and I was going to sit there, and he said, no. He said, brother, you can get on up here with us today. There was a lot of things that I said when we started this journey that I've changed my mind on. I mean, if you can't tell by now, this thing has changed to me. And uh, you have the task, Farrell, of trying to make it make sense. <laughs> this is something that I've felt over these past few months. And I can't, t I can't help but believe it's providential. But where did I leave all of it at? What do you mean? I left it all in Middlesbrough, and look where I've been going. Hmm. I spend more time in Middlesbrough now. I had not been to Middlesbrough since 2007, but one time for a period of about 30 minutes on my way to a gig, I stopped in Middlesbrough just to look at it. And when I came out of that Cumberland Gap, it was one of the greatest days of my life. In fact, I wrote a song about that. golden rays of the morning, rose like Kentucky bourbon over the Cumberland Gap, bringing light to the holler and the wasted county dollars and long coal train tracks. The dew was still rising with the ghost of dead miners from the early black lung graves. As I gazed at the horizon, I was quietly resigned and I'm stuck in this valley another day. And that was a song that I wrote in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. That was the first line of it. I mean, there's more to it. And it was about leaving Middlesbrough and how I felt about the place. I called it a God-forsaken town. Their futures couldn't be worse. Their prospects they curse. It's called mining or welfare. And, you know, I've heard it said before, and this ain't in the Bible, but um, it makes sense to me as people said, you know, you find God where you leave him. When I started doing this, I didn't mean to go back to Middlesbrough. I meant to go back to Middlesbrough Church, because that's where I met Jamie Coots. It's been a life changer. So many things that have happened have just given me new outlook and new perspective. And I'm sure that there were things that I said to you. We could go back, <laughs> not just what made it on the podcast, but other things I said to you. You edited out. I've seen miracles. I believe they're miracles. Really, what's the difference between something that's a miracle and not? Probably not you believe it, I guess. I don't know. 
I will stand by that to the day I die. I've seen people handle serpents that I feel like absolutely did so under the power of God. And I never thought I would say that, but I've seen it. I saw it in the moment and within the context, and I was there in the room, and you could feel the presence of, you know, what I believed at that time to be uh, God. And, and, And right now, I don't know how to deny that. I don't know how to deny that. But then, you know, I think some of the biggest miracles I've ever seen is the way that the worship is. I mean, I've seen strangers. Sometimes people would be strangers come into the church together. They would travel from many, many miles away and come into service together. There's some people going around. They don't know that the Holy Ghost still comes down. And within 30 minutes, they're playing music as if they've been a band and practicing for decades. I have a band, and we play rock and roll music. And every time we have a show, we have to go practice before we have that show. <laughs> Our music couldn't even hold a candle on some of the stuff I've seen. It's been a year since Abe approached Farrell about the serpent handlers, a year like no other. On Friday, the U.S. passed a grim milestone. More than 700,000 Americans have died due to COVID-19. Additionally, 100,000 people have died after vaccines were first made available, and many in the healthcare industry, hopeful at the beginning of the summer, have expressed frustration as millions of Americans have refused the vaccine. And now, as October arrives and infections begin to fall, venues begin to open. More than a year and a half. That's how long it has been since live music was played to live venues in Nashville. But News Channel 3 is on site tonight with the owners of the Bluebird Cafe who have great news. The pandemic is easing, the numbers are going down, and the iconic Bluebird has opened back up to crowds. Abe Partridge has a gig tonight at the famous Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, Tennessee. So many notable people have played here, from Steve Earle to Towns Van Zandt, Garth Brooks to Aerosmith to Dave Grohl. And tonight, Abe has the room sold out. He will bring with him onto the stage tonight something that he thought he left behind in Kentucky the day he passed through the Cumberland Gap for the very last time all those years ago, the authentic sound of Appalachia as interpreted by the skillful hand of a newfound friend. When Andrew Hamblin arrived at the front porch of Sean Byrne, where Sean and Abe were practicing songs for the night show, Andrew held in his hands a brand new guitar strap that he had purchased as soon as he arrived in Nashville. This was not a strap for tying up somebody's hands, but rather to uphold Andrew's glorious banjo. It's a beautiful strap, burnt orange, with earthy designs all over it. It matches the preacher's special belt and belt buckle, both handed down to him from his beloved papaw. I, I can't complain. Andrew Taylor, this is Sean Byrne. Hey man, welcome to the show. You're the man, the myth, the legend, correct? I don't know. <laughs> None of those? I am a man, I think. Man, look at them snake boots. That's just in case something was to happen. I've been totally existed in their world for over a year. I drive to where they are, go into their churches, I play by their rules, I do what I'm allowed, and and, uh, they drove to where I was, and they came into my world, played by my rules, and uh, it's a beautiful thing, you know, it's like, I mean, it's friendship, right? That's what friendship is. There's no two people in the entire world that are 100% alike. Everybody, I mean, if they're true to themselves, then everybody has certain ways and attributes and characteristics of them that are unique to them. And friendship and relationships are built upon people compromising and 
seeing the best in others and finding ways to connect with people as opposed to finding ways to disconnect with people. The trio, Andrew on banjo, Sean Byrne on upright bass, and Abe on acoustic guitar, falls right in, playing bluegrass on Sean's front porch as if they'd been playing it together forever. You know, to be up on that stage with one of the greatest musicians in Nashville, and I mean that, and a man, I mean, Sean Byrne was instrumental in everything that I do. And to have him at my left and then Andrew come up there, you know, the greatest of the Serpent Hamlet preachers as far as I'm concerned. Tonight, Andrew will accompany Abe on one of Abe's most personal songs, Appalachian Farewell a song that Andrew himself had chosen when Abe asked if he might look at Abe's songbook and come all the way from Kentucky to give Abe the honor of playing a song with him. Andrew listened to all of Abe's songs and chose this one. He told Abe it spoke to him, which meant a lot to Abe. Tonight, at the Bluebird, the room is full and it's quiet, and they hang on every word that Abe says. Hello, everybody. My name's Abe Partridge, and I came up here from Mobile, Alabama to sing y'all some songs. They laugh at the parts he wants them to laugh at, like this one, his signature live performance song called Abe Partridge's 403rd Freakout. And then I started considering the brutality that I witness every day and how numb to the side of human suffering that I've become in my middle age. Now all the fascists and the commies are spewing out their dogmas, taking over the conversations. Any voice that's devoid of an agenda has been removed from consideration. And I started thinking about the weapons of mass destruction, biological and chemical and nukes. And we could have had them all fired from the push of a button of an orange presidential buffoon. And so I started reading up on how I was going to survive a nuclear apocalypse. After my research, I concluded I didn't even want to survive to live in a world like that. So even if I try to be positive and convince myself that someday we might actually see peace, well, it's then that I realize in like a billion years or something, our planet's going to cease to be because the sun has gravity too, you know? We're being pulled in as we orbit. And if we don't find a way to destroy ourselves, then the sun's going to do it for us. And so, la, 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 la. And they fall silent when Andrew Hamblin rises to join Abe on the stage for Appalachian Farewell. In Andrew's hands is one of the most beautiful vintage Gibson banjos you've ever seen. But then I heard Appalachian Farewell. When I began to listen to it, southeastern Kentucky is not for me. I am literally pastoring in a building in the heart, the epicenter of the area that says Andrew Hamlin is a reprobate and he's not qualified to preach. He is an apostate. He's, you know, ignorant. Some will dare say I'm a blasphemer. And the meaning behind that song, saying goodbye to this area, the misery of every day you wake up and it's the same thing from the same people, the same drive to work, and there has to be more out there. And that's when that song just, boom, spoke to me. And I went in the house and got my banjo. And I come back outside, and I was on the porch. And lo and behold, I mean, it took me a few tries, but I learned to play that song. That was his night. That was his moment. But the love that Abe Partridge has is not of and for himself. It's for his fellow man. 
it's for everybody. Because instead of just, hey, man, I'm going to play the bluebird. <laughs> it was, hey, man, we're going to play the bluebird. <laughs> Not only did he invite me, he said, I want you to play Appalachian Farewell. Gather around this mic, Sean, if you want to come over here by that Ed Weiner. This is incredible. I began questing for music, and the podcast happened after that. But then it culminates at what is quite possibly the most famous songwriter venue in the entire world, the Bluebird Cafe. I wrote this song whenever I was leaving Kentucky. I pastored a church there for two and a half years, and leaving there was one of the greatest days of my entire life. <laughs> I wrote this song about it. Farrell, then... you remember when you were there? You remember that guitar strap I was wearing? Yeah. That was Jamie Coots's guitar strap. Cody gave that to me a couple months ago. We're still waiting for old Lemonhead to be constructed into the guitar strap of my dreams, but Cody gave me Jamie Coots's guitar strap. And I tell you what, if you look at the cover, you took the picture of Young and Cassie in front of Full Gospel Tabernacle in Jesus' name. And then I took that picture, I cut it out, and I painted around it and made the um, cover for their record. But if you look on that cover, Cody's wearing that same guitar strap. Abe, that seems remarkable that he would give you that. I mean, if it were my dad's guitar strap that had been left behind for me, I doubt I would ever give you something like that. Yeah. Ever be able to part with it, period. So what was that moment like when he gave that strap to you? We were sitting at Free Pentecostal House of Prayer. We were sitting there one service, and uh, as the service was over, people were, you know, filing out and talking. And I went up to the front, and I was just picking around with Cody. Cody had his guitar. I had mine, and we were just, uh, Cody was showing me some songs and stuff he'd written. And, you know, I was trying to pick along with him. That guitar strap was sitting underneath the pulpit. It was in the Bible stand at Andrew's church. And I said, Cody, what's your uh, guitar strap? Your dad's guitar strap doing there. And he went over there and he got it and he handed it to me. He said, I want you to have that. I've been going up there and uh, I've been going back up to Kentucky and and uh, in East Tennessee and the Appalachians there. And I've been finding faith again. And this is uh, this this man's been instrumental. His name's Andrew Hamlin. Come all the way up from East Kentucky, play the band for you. some moments in this thing that, that have brought me to my knees, you know, not literally, but spiritually. And that was one of them, you know, it was just like, um, it was an act of, uh, of respect, of love and of, and of brotherhood. You know what I mean? Satan, your kingdom must come down. This has been Alabama Astronaut. We have had an absolute ball putting this show together for you. There are many tangential stories that we have put together that involve all the folks orbital to Abe's story, as well as the serpent handling faith at large. At alabamaastronaut.com, we have songs, insights, extra podcast episodes, interviews, photos, old documents, and all the treasures that Abe has unearthed in his quest. All of it is absolutely awesome. Now prepare for a long list of credits. Or if you're not into credits, you can at least enjoy some of this porch-bound bluegrass from Abe, Andrew, and Sean. Yeah, that's porch-bound We want to thank all the artist experts, and of course, those in the faith who have been so kind to us, welcoming us into your churches, homes, and hearts. 
as you shared with us all of your stories and experiences. Thank you all so much. We would very much like to thank Dennis Covington for his hospitality in Lubbock and for his multiple interviews with Farrell and Abe. We wish him the absolute best. And if you're interested in his all-out pursuit of faith in the face of danger and extreme cost, don't forget to check out Revelation, his 2014 account of a fateful trip to Aleppo, Syria. And of course, how could we forget the book so instrumental in Abe's journey, Salvation on Sand Mountain. We would also like to thank Dr. Ralph Hood for everything he's done involving the serpent handling faith and for being on our show. Special thanks to Dr. Paul Williamson. You should check out the archives that he has built with Dr. Hood at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. It is currently the most comprehensive serpent handling database in the world. It has been of great use to Abe and our cause. Thank you, fellas. We would like to thank Tony Fair for his art, his openness to be part of this adventure, and his friendship. He is certainly a most kindred spirit. To everyone else who has believed in us, and who has encouraged us along the way. Many thanks. We are extremely excited to announce the release of the Coots Duo record, and also Abe's document. A link to Cody and Cassie's new album can be found on alabamaastronaut.com, as well as a group of songs from various performers in Abe's document, singing songs across the serpent handling faith, very much in the spirit of his predecessors, the great American music documenting pioneers, John Avery and Alan Lomax. All the labels, musicians, songwriters, producers, businesses, etc., who allowed us to use your clips for this program. We cannot thank you enough. Special thanks to the state newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina, and the writer Sammy Fretwell, the Sacred Harp Musical Heritage Foundation, for the use of their songs, Wayfaring Stranger and 47B, I Dumea, and the Alan Lomax Collection, the American Folklife Center, Library of Congress. Music! My goodness, there is so much music help we got from all of our friends. Of course, a big thank you to Sean Byrne for all he's done, for the great instrumentation that you've brought to this program and to the albums. Will Stewart for his song Brush Arbor. Dave Garrett for sending us so many great original songs to work with underneath the interviews. And that was how it all began with the overhauls. And the- <laughs> also, that's Farrell's band. All the kimonos, playing some of the sequences in there, including the Clash cover in episode two, them dry bones during the Dr. William Carey sequence, and of course, the infamous Christian song that gave Abe the hives. Speaking of Farrell's band, we would like to thank his bandmate, guitarist, instrumentalist, Brent Busby, who mastered and sound designed all these episodes. Also, we want to thank Kathy Partridge. All of that fiddle played in the episodes was her playing along with Abe. Thank you, Kathy. As for all the news clips you heard in the series, that's Farrell's sister, Barbara Gibbs, of WTVD, Raleigh, North Carolina. The news clips were recreations, mimicking those that actually happened in various towns as the events in Alabama Astronaut played out. Farrell loves you, Barb, and we at the podcast can't thank you enough. If you want to reach out, you can contact Abe and Farrell at alabamaastronautpodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of Farrell, this is the voice of his wife, Elizabeth. It has been a pleasure narrating for you through the course of these episodes, and I can't wait to do it again. I'll be back in season two. We would love to see all of you at Abe's Art Show at the Alabama Contemporary Art Museum. We will be there, and you can get Abe to sign one of his brand new art books for you, full of wonderful depictions of those in the faith that we have discussed on the show. That will be at the Alabama Contemporary Art Center, 301 Conti Street, Mobile, Alabama, in early 2023. Thank you again for listening. Like I said, keep an eye out for next season. We're not finished yet. There's more adventure to come, and that is coming soon. Hey everybody, it's Farrell again. We at Alabama Astronaut do understand, as do so many of the preachers across the serpent handling faith who have uttered so many similar warnings on tapes that Abe has digitized over this past year. 
that some people who hear about this faith could react in a way as to feel compelled to pick up a venomous snake or to drink a harmful substance in accordance with Mark 16. If you do feel this way after listening to the Alabama Astronaut series, we strongly encourage you to reach out to someone in the faith who can explain the difference between what is known as, quote, the anointing, which is a special place achieved by deep prayer and supplication, and not just compulsively picking up a snake. Those preachers and their congregants do not want you to get hurt in the name of this, and absolutely neither do we here. So please be safe out there. Also, one more thing. We never did get to the bottom of that alleged apology by Mr. Covington, which was said to have been delivered to the old Rock House Holiness Church congregation. After Abe visited two different university archives in Tennessee, searching for any records that might contain this truth, even speaking to doctors Ralph Hood and Paul Williamson, Abe could never get rock-solid proof either way that the apology for writing his book did, in fact, take place. As we neared completion of this season of Alabama Astronaut, Abe's plan was to approach several longtime members of Old Rock House Holiness Church who would have attended that day in question, and Abe was going to ask them if the apology took place as Billy Summerford had described it. But once the preacher passed away, Abe just didn't have the stomach to press the congregation for this truth who had just lost their leader. So Abe has let it go and he wishes to convey to you that more important than having that question answered was the quest itself, the journey that his curiosity took him on and all the experiences and relationships that followed in its wake. We here at Alabama Astronaut wish for you the same sort of opportunities in your life to do the same. Thank you for listening to us. We will see you soon. Play, uh, play Reuben with them tuners. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to say I'll settle back. Oh, uh, it seems deep.